Good evening. Thanks for gathering with us this evening online uh, for our live stream of um, our Good Friday service. And this evening we want to spend some time uh, singing together. Um, we're going to have some passages of scripture to read, and, and Zach's going to bring a message from God's Word. So as we begin, I want to read a passage from Hebrews chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open with me to Hebrews chapter 9, and just look at a few verses, at verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Hebrews 9, 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that we could gather together, even virtually this evening, to remember um, Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And I ask that you would help us to reflect, to think deeply, to remember what Jesus Christ uh, purchased for us on that cross. Uh, the pain that he endured as he took his sin upon, or he took our sin upon himself. God, I ask that you would be honored and glorified in our, in our evening as we spend looking at your word and singing together. We thank you for Zach's willingness to bring um, God's word to us this evening. May you speak through him. And I pray that everything we do, say, and think this evening will bring honor and glory to your name. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read Isaiah 53 for us now. And I love this passage because it tells us so much about what Christ did in his life, death, and resurrection. So listen carefully. Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death 
although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Well, good evening, Edgewood Bible Church. It is a great privilege for me to be able to open up the Bible with you tonight and attempt to explain just some of the significance of that very first Good Friday. But why do we call today Good Friday? What's so good about this day? Throughout the years, I've met a handful of people who really don't like the term Good Friday. And on the surface, it may not seem like the best name to give to this particular day, because on that first Good Friday, the one that we're commemorating today, some really bad things happened. You know the story. There was this remarkable man named Jesus of Nazareth, who by all accounts was a kind and a loving man who did a lot of really good things and helped a lot of people. But then one Thursday night, almost 2,000 years ago, this kind and loving man was betrayed by one of his closest friends, who turned him over to the cruelty of a band of armed soldiers, at which point the rest of his closest friends abandoned him out of fear. And it only got worse for Jesus as Thursday night became Friday morning, because although he had done nothing wrong, he was arrested, he was mocked and mistreated throughout the night in many painful and shameful ways. And I have to ask, Where is the good in any of that? He was put on trial. He was falsely accused, and then he was condemned to die as if he were a common criminal. How could any of that possibly be good? And I don't have the stomach to give you the details of his death, crucifixion, designed by the Romans with the goal of being one of the most gruesome and torturous forms of execution. It was meant to terrify people into submission to Rome. And that was the death that this innocent man, Jesus, suffered. Large nails being driven through his hands and feet into a wooden cross where he hung, suffering for multiple hours before finally breathing his last breath. And that's what happened on this first so-called Good Friday, the one we would normally gather together to remember today. So why don't we call it Bad Friday? Wouldn't that be a more appropriate name, especially when we consider how truly good Jesus was? How about Tragic Friday or Disastrous Friday? This was arguably the darkest day in human history, and I would suggest that we call it Black Friday, but that's taken. On the surface, there was nothing good about what happened to Jesus that day. On the surface, there was nothing good. 
And I'm sympathetic to those who have a hard time calling today Good Friday because for anyone who loves Jesus, it's not easy to attach the name Good to the day of his greatest suffering. But the Bible from beginning to end teaches us that there was more going on in the death of Christ than first meets the eye. And I don't think that we need to start any petitions for a name change. But before we attempt to find the good in Good Friday, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, you are good, and everything that you do is good. Everything that you do is right. I pray that you would open up our eyes tonight, open our hearts to see that yes, our sin is great, but your grace is far greater. Increase our love for you as we reflect on your great love for us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible nearby, turn with me to the book of 1 John. And I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And I'll be focusing most of my comments tonight on verse 10, but it'll be helpful for us to see a bit more of the context before we begin. And as we read, see if you can spot the one word that John uses most often in the passage. 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. In us. So, did you catch the one word that John repeats over and over in the passage? Thirteen times in these six verses, he uses the word love. One of John's primary reasons for writing this letter was to urge the people to love one another. And this is already the third time in this short letter that John has brought up the subject of Christians loving one another. It's almost as if church folk need to be constantly reminded to love each other. I know I do. But it's not enough to simply tell people to love one another. We need to be shown how to love. What does love look like in practice? We need an example. We need a model to follow. And that's exactly what John does in this passage. First, he tells us that God is love. He's the source of love. Love is in his very nature. So it only makes sense that if we're going to learn how to love, we need to look to him. So how does God love? What does his love look like? Let's look to the beginning of verse 10. In this is love. So now John is about to lay before us the ultimate example of God's love. But before he does, he says, not that we have loved God, now, why would he throw that line in there? Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say. You will never know the love of God 
until you know yourself. We will never appreciate the love of God until we know the startling truth about ourselves, apart from him, and about his wondrous grace. God, we are told, has loved us. Why? Has God loved us because we are lovable? Has he loved us because we are such kind and wonderful people, so deserving of his favor? Well, the short answer to those questions is no. We are neither lovable nor in any way deserving of God's favor. And until we're overwhelmed with a sense of our sinfulness and unworthiness, we'll never be overwhelmed by a sense of God's love for us. And this is the biblical pattern. Before we can understand and appreciate the good news about who God is and what he's done, we must understand the bad news about who we are and what we've done. And the bad news is clearly implied in a few places in this chapter. So if you've had any involvement with the Awana program, you may be familiar with 1 John 4.14. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This verse implies that the world, which includes all of us, needs to be saved. The question is, saved from what? Let's look back to the end of verse 9. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That we might live. John understands what the Bible has taught ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God all the way back in Genesis 3. That a kind of spiritual death has taken place. And while we do have the appearance of life, we're like flowers that have been cut from their roots. We've been cut off from the source of life, who is God. Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. From this, one thing is clear, dead people can't give themselves life. Dead people can't save themselves. We need to be saved from death. But that's not all. Look at the end of verse 10. It says that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I know that propitiation is not a word that people use in everyday conversation, and it's so uncommon, actually, that many translations of the Bible choose not to use the word at all, but they might substitute something like atoning sacrifice instead of propitiation. But even though it is an unfamiliar word to many, I'm convinced that it's the best English word to translate the Greek word that John uses here. And it's worth taking some time to learn. So husbands, imagine it's your 10th wedding anniversary and you forgot. Your wife is now angry with you, and rightfully so. Forgetting an anniversary is a serious relational transgression. But now you're determined to appease the wrath of your wife and win her favor by giving her a gift. So you stop by the store and buy her a dozen beautiful red roses, and as you come trembling back to your house, your prayer is that those costly dead flowers will somehow propitiate the anger of your wife. When John uses the word propitiation, he does so because he recognizes that God is rightly angry with this sinful world. It's right for God to be angry with you and with me. 
So look again at the beginning of verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. We're not the example of love. In, if anything, we're the anti-example. People in their natural state don't love God. In fact, at the very heart of all sin is wrongly ordered love. We love something more than we love God. We love some person more than we love God. We love some experience or hobby or status more than we love God. But I think many of us struggle to grasp just how wicked our wrongly ordered love is. So I spent a lot of time in the past few weeks trying to think of, trying to think of illustrations that would help us to grasp just how bad our wrongly ordered love is. And every illustration I could think of falls short, but I'm going to give it a try anyway. So if you're married, I want you to picture your spouse. And if you're not married, picture a sibling or a close friend. Picture anyone who should love you simply because of their relationship to you. Now, imagine you said to the person who should love you, hey, I canceled all my weekend plans. Let's do something together. They think about it for a minute and say, you know, I would, but I just painted a wall in my house, a really nice eggshell white, and I already made plans to just sit and stare at that wall all weekend long. You would be perplexed at this point, but you might ask, well, can I stare at the wall with you? Oh no, they say, but you can bring me drinks and snacks and make sure that me and my friends are comfortable. Wait, you and your friends? Oh, yeah. Oh, and by the way, if we don't think you're doing a good job taking care of us, we're going to be really upset with you. It's your job to keep us comfortable and happy, but just don't bother us, okay? Now, I know that sounds far-fetched, but if that were to somehow happen, you would be right to be angry. Now, picture God, our creator, our sustainer, infinitely worthy of praise and adoration from his creatures, infinitely worthy of our love. But we have not loved him, and our failure to love him as we ought is infinitely worse than that person who should love you choosing instead to stare at a wall, demanding to be served by you, but refusing to include you in their life. Every one of us is guilty of treating God this way. Romans 1 says that we've all exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And now because of our sin, because of our wrongly ordered love, we've earned death and we deserve wrath and we are completely incapable of saving ourselves. We need a savior. So today is Good Friday and so far I've done nothing but deliver bad news. This is the turning point in the conversation. Let's read 1 John 4.10 one more time. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
considering everything I just said about how bad we are, those three words, he loved us, should come as a shock and a surprise to us. Can you imagine doing something both costly and painful for the good of someone who has done nothing but wrong you? And yet that's how God loved us. In order to save us, he sent his son. It was costly to be the propitiation for our sins. It was unimaginably painful. I began this this message talking about the horrendous mistreatment of Jesus on that first Good Friday. That's what God sending his son to save us looked like. And it was meant to be horrifying to show us the seriousness of our sin. That's the kind of treatment that we as sinners deserve. But even as gruesome as the death of Jesus was to look at, there was an unseen aspect of his death that was even worse. So Pastor Ryan has been recording videos each week to teach the kids Bible stories. And I and my son Shepard were watching one of those videos a couple weeks ago, and Ryan held up a picture with three men hanging on crosses. And I don't know if maybe I've just failed to teach my son that there were three men who were crucified that day, or maybe he just realized it for the first time, but he asked me why there were three people on crosses. So I put Ryan on pause, which is one of the benefits of learning from our pastors on video, and I explained to him that, yeah, two other men were crucified with Jesus. They had done some bad things. They were criminals and they were dying for their own crimes. And then I asked my son, whose crimes was Jesus dying for? And parents, if you'd like, you can put me on pause right now and ask your kids that question. Whose crimes was Jesus dying for? my son thought about it for a few seconds, and then he looked at me, and he pointed to himself. Yes, Jesus never committed any crimes. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He had no sin. He never lied. He never stole anything. He never even had a sinful thought run through his mind. And yet, on the cross, Jesus willingly died, suffered for crimes he didn't commit. The Apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus committed no sin, but that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that although Jesus knew no sin, God made him to be sin, our sin, so that the wrath of God that had been directed at sinners, us, was redirected to Jesus as he hung on the cross. Jesus propitiated God's wrath. I gave the illustration earlier of a husband trying to propitiate his wife after forgetting their anniversary, and using that illustration here falls short because our transgressions are far worse. And any attempt that we might make to propitiate God is far more pathetic because you know that trying to propitiate your wife by for, after forgetting a, a significant anniversary by giving her some flowers will likely only make her more angry. 
some wrongs can't be bought and paid for. Not by us, anyway. Even to think that we could somehow satisfy God's wrath by any amount of good deeds or church attendance or anything else would be like burning down your neighbor's house and flipping him a nickel and thinking that you're cool now, right? If God's wrath is going to be propitiated, God is going to have to do it himself. And that's exactly what he sent his son to do. God pours out his love on us by emptying out his wrath on his son. And I like John Stott's definition of the word propitiation. It is the appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. Let me repeat that. Propitiation is the appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. And that's what happened on a Friday nearly 2,000 years ago. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now that passage of scripture is packed with big, beautiful words, justified, grace, redemption, propitiation, and I wish I had time to unpack all of them for you, but just note, we who deserve condemnation are saved from the wrath of God and rescued from slavery to sin. We're declared to be righteous, and all these things are a gift that we do not deserve. It's all of grace. And it's all made available because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. That is good news. And Paul says that we receive these things, we receive this gift by faith. And faith means to fully trust in Jesus. Don't trust in your bouquet of dead flowers. Don't think that a shiny nickel of good works could possibly pay for a lifetime of sin. Trust in the love of God demonstrated at the cross of Christ and trust in him alone. We call today Good Friday because it was through the suffering of Jesus on the cross, this ultimate display of the love of God, that the anger of God was turned to favor for all who believe. We also call today Good Friday because this message of Jesus dying for sinners is at the very heart of the gospel, and that word gospel means good news. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, very beginning of the chapter, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. And then that's what he does. He just reminds the Corinthian church of the gospel. And really that's all I've attempted to do tonight is to remind Edgewood Bible Church of the gospel. And then he goes on to explain what it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to say something pretty cool happens on three days later. But I'll leave that for Jeff to talk about on Sunday. So I need to wrap this up soon. But before we close, 
I should remind you also that the Apostle John has been setting before us the ultimate example of love. And his goal is that this example of God's love would be imitated by God's people. He says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, he's not saying that we somehow love one another by being a propitiation for sins. That specific act of love has been completed once for all time for those who believe by Jesus on the cross. But we as God's people should be marked by our willingness to give of ourselves, our time, our energy, our resources for the good of others in costly, sacrificial ways. Let me repeat that. We as God's people should be marked by our willingness to give of ourselves, our time, our energy, our resources for the good of others in costly and sacrificial ways. And considering everything that's been going on in the world today, we have many opportunities to love as we have been loved. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for loving us, even though we have failed so miserably to love you. Help us by the power of your spirit to rightly order our love to love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. We thank you for showing us how to love. And as we reflect tonight on that first Good Friday, I ask that you would bring to each of our minds some practical ways that we can now show love to those whom you have placed in our lives. We love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we end uh, this evening, I wanted to read John's gospel account of the crucifixion of Jesus in John chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 19. Follow with me as I read verses 16 through the end. So he delivered him over to be crucified. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote a description and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what, have I, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own house. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood 
there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine and a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross and the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as in the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father, we recognize the solemnness of this day and what it represents. And I ask that you would help us as we now finish this time gathered together, thinking of Jesus, thinking of the reason why he came to earth to, to live among us and the purpose of death. He had no sin of his own, but he died for us to satisfy your wrath against our sin. And God, I ask that you would make it real in, in our understanding this weekend. May we not just uh, glib through this weekend, uh, occupying ourselves with things to entertain us and to, to satisfy every desire we have, but may we spend time this weekend meditating on you and your sacrifice for us. And Father, we look forward to Sunday morning we could gather as our, in our family, in our homes, and remember what Jesus Christ has done, that he has risen from the grave, and we'd celebrate that as a gathered ch church that is dispersed at this time for your honor and for your glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. Lord bless you. Good night.